Welcome to the New Heights Show on Education. I'm Pamela Clark, founder and director of the New Heights Educational Group. And I'm here with David Smith, the founder of Silicon Valley High School, who has helped us get these podcasts produced and delivered to you. Yes, Pamela, when we saw the great things that you and your army of volunteers were achieving at New Heights, we wanted to get involved. We're happy to work with you to leverage the internet and make quality education accessible and affordable to everyone, everywhere. Thank you, David. We appreciate Silicon Valley High School helping us to get these podcasts out to the hundreds of thousands of listeners from all over the world. So I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to New Heights Educational Group. My name is Kaden Behan, your host. Still slightly sick, but getting better, thankfully. Uh, today's show will be on sex education part two in public schools. But before we begin, we have some announcements, as always. Right now, you might be struggling through your classes or even failing them. You might be worried that you may not finish high school. There might have even been a thought that you may not be smart enough. Well, the New Heights Educational Group begs to differ. We not only think you are smart enough, but with our help, you will complete your high school diploma. The New Heights Educational Group strives to improve your academic success through its tutoring services. To learn more, please visit newheightseducation.org and contact us. New Heights Educational Group, educational resources to help reach your goals. So today, um, we've had a couple of breaks since we last talked about sex education in public schools, and where we left off was mainly highlighting the issues that have arisen because of sex education and the development of new ways of trying to teach sex education, whether it be abstinence only or in more comprehensive programs, how that affects the outcome of the effectiveness of sex education, so whether or not these tools are effective in keeping the STD rate down among young adults. Um, keeping pregnancy down among among young adults. And so just to highlight a little bit from the last show that we had on this topic, many of the issues that surrounded this um, have arisen mainly from the conflict between pro-abstinence-only education supporters and more comprehensive programs that teach about that teach about different ways of having safe sex and using birth control and other methods of staying safe while having sex, um, and also teaching about pregnancy, planned parenthood, and things like that. So the main issues have arisen between those two groups um, with absence only supporters being the more uh, dominant, I suppose, in the argument. And so additionally, with those issues, is devising a strategy for teaching sex education so that both parents and students uh, students are getting the best education that they can, parents are satisfied and that it doesn't offend um, particular parents or familial um, interpretations of what is right to teach their children and what's not. Um, So we were talking a little bit about that and then some other issues that had to do with the teachers themselves, which is lack of training for teachers, lack of support for teachers. Um, a lot of times teachers have to, um, it's very risky teaching sex education because of the possibility of perhaps offending students in class or getting in trouble by the parents upon teaching something that perhaps maybe is not 
necessarily viewed as um, PC. So we talked a lot about that. And so in this show, I want to talk a little bit more, um, not about the issues, but addressing the issues. And so we're going to talk about addressing the problems um, and what makes effective sex education. So again, this information was taken um, from, excuse me, <coughs> Patricia Donovan from the Gutmacher or uh, .org, which is um, a national sex education. Okay, I have just been perpetually sick, and hopefully, hopefully soon won't be. So that way, our listeners will have a better. Better time listening to me speak. I do apologize if it does not sound very, very good. But like it says from Patricia Donovan of the Goodmonster Institute for Sex Education and Public Health, <clears throat> and we're going to begin with addressing the problems. Sex education proponents point to several steps that would address concerns about teacher preparedness and perceptions of lack of community support. These include improving professional training. Undergraduate institutions should require prospective teachers in certain disciplines, such as health education, to take both subject matter and methodology courses on sexuality, STD, and HIV education, say sex education advocate. In addition, they say all states should have or adopt certification requirements for teachers of sex education, HIV, and STD education. They should also require that school districts do more to facilitate staff development. In 1997, the Hawaii legislature adopted a resolution along these lines, encouraging the State Department of Education to study the feasibility of requiring all health teachers to be certified to teach health, to take five continuing education classes in specified health-related areas, including teenage pregnancy and STD and HIV prevention, and to be evaluated along with their curriculum by students. Also established local advisory committees, proponents of comprehensive sex education suggest that communities create local advisory committees composed of parents, religious leaders, medical professionals, and other community leaders to review and approve curricula, books, and other materials being proposed for use in sexuality education courses. Some states already require that such a committee be established. An advisory committee builds support for the program, explains Patricia Nichols, supervisor of the school health program in the Michigan Department of Health. Nichols and others point out that while committee members may not agree on every issue, once they reach a decision, the committees generally stand behind it and even, even when challenged. This solid backing, Nichols' notes, provides protection for teachers. Encourage parental involvement. Advisory committees have the additional advantage of encouraging parents to become more involved in the development and implementation of sexual education courses. In contrast, merely giving parents the option of taking their children out in sexuality education classes provides no such opportunities for parents' active engagement. Gerald Newberry, Executive Director of the National Health Information Network at the National Education Association and former Head of Family Life Education in Fairfax County, Virginia, observes an opt-out program doesn't make parents more comfortable and knowledgeable. Newberry and others suggest that teachers hold information sessions early in the school year to give parents an opportunity to learn about the curriculum and to review materials that will be used in the course. 
This podcast is brought to you by Silicon Valley High School, the world's fastest growing, video-based, self-paced, teacher-supported, fully accredited online school that's recommended by more than 96% of students. Take individual courses at just $95 each or earn your high school diploma at any age. Check us out at svhs.co. In a novel approach to this issue, Washington State permits parents to remove their child from mandated AIDS education classes, but only after parents have attended a program offered by the school district on weekends and evenings to review the curriculum and to meet with the teacher. Promote benefits of comprehensive programs. On a broader level, sex education advocates believe that continuing to make the case for comprehensive programs is critical. Our message declares Planned Parenthood's McGee has to be that it is immoral to deprive people of information that can save lives and promote health. Just say no campaigns clearly do not provide such information. Despite, and this, these are abstinence-only campaigns, despite the current momentum of abstinence-only movement, there is reason for optimism that more comprehensive programs will prevail. In several California communities, for example, parents and teachers have successfully opposed efforts by conservative anti-sex education school board members to implement abstinence-only curricula or otherwise undermine sex education. In Hemet, for example, the school board was forced to back down from its abstinence-only approach to AIDS education after parents and teachers sued the school system. Similarly, parents' protests stopped the school board in Ventura County from proceeding with its plan to bar HIV instruction training for teachers. There was a huge backlash, reports Superintendent Charles Weiss. It was like awakening a sleeping giant. The defeat of conservative incumbents sent a clear message to extreme right to the extreme right that they could not fulfill their agenda and stay on the school board. <clears throat> now we're going to talk about sex, effective sex education, what has been proven to be effective sex education. Each year, U.S. teens experience as many as 850,000 pregnancies, and youth under the age of 25 experience about 9.1 million sexually transmitted infections, or STIs. By the age of 18, 70% of U.S. females and 62% of U.S. males have initiated vaginal sex. Comprehensive sex education is effective at assisting young people to make healthy decisions about sex and to adopt healthy sexual behaviors. No abstinence only until marriage program has been shown to help teens delay the initiation of sex or to protect themselves when they do initiate sex. Yet the U.S. government has spent over $1 billion supporting abstinence only until marriage programs. <clears throat> Although the U.S. government ignores it, adolescents have a fundamental human right to, to, to accurate and comprehensive sex uh, health information. Comprehensive sexual education is effective and does not promote sexual risk. Research has identified highly effective sex education and HIV prevention programs that affect multiple behaviors and achieve positive health impacts. Behavioral outcomes have included delaying the initiation of sex as well as reducing the frequency of sex, the number of new partners, and the incidence of unprotected sex or the increasing and has increased the use of condom and contra contraception among sexually active participants. Long-term impacts have included lower STI or pregnant and pregnancy rates. 
No highly effective sex education or HIV prevention education program is eligible for federal funding because the mandates because mandates prohibit educating youth about the benefits of condoms and contraception. Evaluations of comprehensive sex education, HIV, and STI prevention programs show that they do not increase rates of sexual initiation, do not lower the age at which youth initiate sex, and do not increase the frequency of sex or the number of sex partners among the sexually active youth. In 1991 and 2004, the U.S. teen birth rate fell from 62 to 41 per 1,000 female teens. Some experts attribute the 70, 75% of the decline to increased contraceptive use and 25% to delayed initiation of sex. Others credit increased contraceptive use and delayed initiation of sex about equally. Regardless, contraceptive use has been critical in reducing teenage pregnancy. Abstinence-only programs are dangerous, ineffective, and inaccurate. The Society for Adolescent Medicine recently declared that that abstinence-only programs threaten fundamental human rights to health, information, and life. According to Columbia University research, according to Columbia University researchers, virginity pledge programs increase pledge takers' risk for STIs and pregnancy. The study concluded that 88% of pledge takers initiated sex prior to marriage, even though some delayed sex for a while. Rates of STI among pledge takers and non-pledge takers were similar, even though pledge takers initiated sex later. Pledge takers were less likely to seek STI testing and less likely to use contraception when they did have sex. Evaluation of the effectiveness of state-funded abstinence only until marriage programs found no delay in the the first act of sexual contact. In fact, of six evaluations that assessed short-term changes in behavior, three found no changes, two found increased sexual activity from pre- to post-test, and one showed mixed results. Five evaluations looked for but found no long-term impact in reducing teen sexual activity. Analysis of the data from youth risk behavior surveys found that sexual activity among high school youth declined significantly from 1991 to 1997 prior to large-scale funding of abstinence only until marriage program, but changed little from 1999 to 2003 with federal funding of such programs. Analysis of federally funded abstinence only curricula found that only that over 80% of the curricula supported by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services services contain false or distorted information about reproductive health. Specifically, they conveyed false information about the effectiveness of contraceptives, false information about the risk of abortion, religious beliefs as scientific fact, stereotypes about boys and girls as scientific fact, and medical and scientific errors as fact. Medical organizations, parents and public support conferences, and parents and the public support comprehensive sex education, the American Academy of Pediatrics, American, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, American Medical Association, American Public Health Association, Institute of Medicine, Society, the Society for Adolescent Medicine, among others, support comprehensive sex education, including education about both abstinence and also contraceptive and condoms. In one study, most American adults supported sex education that includes information about both abstinence and also contraception and condoms. In fact, 89% believe that this was important for young people to have information about contraception 
and prevention of STIs, and that sexual education should focus on how to avoid unintended pregnancy and STIs, including HIV. In another recent survey, 94% of adults and 93% of parents said that sex education should cover contraception. Only 15% of Americans wanted abstinence-only education taught in the classroom. Characteristics of effective sex education. Experts have identified critical characteristics of highly effective sex education, HIV, and STI prevention education programs. Such programs offer age and culturally appropriate sexual health information in safe environment for participants, are developed in cooperation with members of the target community, especially the young, young people, assist youth in clarifying their individual family and community values, assist youth in developing skills in communication, refusal, refusal and negotiation, provide medically accurate information about both abstinence and also contraception, including condoms, <clears throat> have clear goals for preventing HIV and other STIs or teen preg- and teen pregnancy, focus on specific health behaviors related to goals with clear messages about these behaviors, address psychological risk and protective factors with activities to change each targeted risk and to promote each protective factor, reflect community values, and respond to community needs, rely on participatory teaching methods implemented by trained educators and using all the activities as designed. So that's the article that I pulled out from the Good Monster Institute. And now we're just going to digress a little, um, debrief a little bit with what Pamela sent me with her opinion on sex education. And then we'll just, and after uh, I go through her opinion, I'll just offer mine. Uh, Pamela's opinion is that sex education is indeed important and that it should be taught in schools, but that sex education uh, in regards to sexuality and intercourse, contraception, things like that, should not be taught as early as as some schools have instituted. Um, And so this is not necessary. So sex education, what I believe um, Pamela would support is that puberty, teaching about puberty and things like that is much different than, uh, they can both be classified as sex education, but I think that puberty is probably good to teach at a younger age so that children know um, what to expect to happen to, to them as they go through the fun and awkward stages of puberty. But I definitely do agree with Pamela that uh, intercourse, uh, contraception, and things like that should not be taught to necessarily elementary or middle school students, uh, or at least not till late middle school or early high school. Um, so what I so what I was saying. So what my opinion is, is that um, I agree mainly with the article that sexual education is really, really important. Uh, I definitely do not support abstinence-only education. And I think the main reason that is because I, I grew up with sex education being taught, with having resources to learning about uh, STIs, how to prevent STIs, how to prevent HIV, how to prevent pregnancy, the different types of contraception you can use. Um, and I think it really grounds young people, um, especially when they're old enough to understand it. When you're taught abstinence only, I feel like you're not really being given, you're, well, you're not, you're not really being given all the information about 
what it means to have a sexual relationship with somebody else. And I think that, like I said, the comprehensive programs really ground you into understanding the responsibility of having sexual relations, what it means, what the risks are psychologically and health-wise. Uh, my program, the school that I went to, the Academy of Allied Health and Science, did a really good job at teaching all the different angles of um, sex and sexuality through through not only health health materials but also through what psychologically it means to commit yourself to somebody to have sex and things like that. And I really think that it makes students think more about sex in a more responsible way because you're more exposed to information about sex, about STIs, about the different risks associated with different contraception deception methods, um, different risks associated with having risky intercourse and protected sex. And I think that it's really important for students to be exposed to this because I think it actually, at least for me, I think it's helped me to delay that process of being sexually sorry, sorry a little person but it's, I'm it's helped me to not want to be sexually active until I'm ready and I think that's what parents want they want their children to be to be able to form their own moral values with all the information that they receive and I think that the more comprehensive programs allow students to do this, to take that information and decide for themselves, am I ready for this huge commitment? Am I ready for all the risks that I could have? Am I ready am I ready for pregnancy if something should happen? And those are the questions that my class made us think about. If we get pregnant, are we ready for that? If not, then maybe we shouldn't be having intercourse, even if you are on contraceptive. So... I really think that these programs offer a great amount of information. I do not think in any way that they promote sexual intercourse. If anything, I think that they give the students enough information to be informed enough to be comfortable with saying, I don't want to have sex yet, or I don't want to have sex till I'm married and I'm in a committed relationship and I feel comfortable that if should anything happen, that I'm with somebody that I love and it's going to be okay. Or uh, on the opposite side, it can make someone feel comfortable. Okay, I want to have, you know, um, intercourse before I'm married, but I know how to protect myself and I know how to not put myself in risky situations to be hurt emotionally or to be hurt uh, physically. And so I think it helps students form their own values given information that the class is taught. And I think that's one of the most important things that like we talked about with the Darwin um, versus intelligent design debate, that I think one of the most important things that school can provide for people is information. And the values that you form should not be influenced by this information, but you should have exposure to (coughs) all this information so that you can make these. Um, You can establish your values and you Oh, I do, do apologize, trying to make a point and coughing away. But I do think that, like I said, the most important thing is to expose people who are able, well, people who are able to understand, like like I said before, um, you know, these programs should be age appropriate. So I think it's important to expose people to information that is appropriate for their age. So that way, when they make the decision 
to act on this information. They have all the facts. They have everything they need to be protected and safe and and psychologically sound when they do make a decision to have sex or not have sex. And so that's my take on it. And, of course, you know, it's up to the parents to decide what's you know, right for their children, but I strongly encourage parents to, like I did with the Darwin debate, to expose their children to as much information that is age-appropriate for them so that way that when they are trying to make a decision, for example, in this case, should I, should I not have sex, they know all the information that they need to know that if they're going to have sex or not going to have sex, they feel comfortable in that. So they're not uncomfortable in the sense because they don't know how to protect themselves or they don't know the risk of STI infection or they don't know how to get testing. So I don't think parents would ever want their children to be in a situation where they don't know what decision they should make. And I think that these programs really help students and children to be, not children, but young adults, to be very comfortable in the decisions that they make in regards to sexuality and sexual intercourse. And so I strongly encourage parents to participate in their school district to find out what these programs are teaching, uh, to talk to your children. Um, if your children does, do attend public schools or charter schools, ask them what they're learning in class, um, in their health class, because it's really important for life. And I think that a lot of times it just gets overlooked as, oh, just a health class that I have to pass. But it's something that I found has been very, very important for me. And so I strongly encourage parents to get involved with their school, find out what they're teaching in this respect, and to talk to their children about it and have this open discussion with them. What are they comfortable with learning? What are they comfortable with the teaching at the school? And so that's my two cents. And I thank the audience again for bearing with me through my sickness. I hope someday that I won't be sick anymore. No one can only hope. Next week for Thanksgiving, I won't be here, but I do hope that you have a great, great Thanksgiving to everybody in the audience, and we'll pick up again the week after Thanksgiving. Thank you again so much for listening, and have a great weekend. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to rate us and follow us on your podcast player. Check out our show page, radio.newheightseducation.org for monthly announcements and other happenings.